0: Can't-to-can't, can't-see-to-can't-see I'm working can't-to-can't,
1: can't-see-to-can't-see It's World War 2 we're doing our part Early in the moment to wait past dark
2: Can't-to-can't, can't-see-to-can't-see
0: Almost exactly 80 years ago, June 17th, 1943, to be precise, One of the most unlikely strikes in American history took place. Black women tobacco workers shut down R.J. Reynolds Tobacco, the largest tobacco manufacturing plant covering 100 acres in downtown Winston-Salem. We were tired of the workload, tired of the boss standing over us with a whip in his hand, said Geneva McClendon one of the handful of stemmery workers in R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Factory Number 65, who sparked the strike by 10,000 workers led by Theodosius Simpson. We wanted better working conditions, said McClendon, and we wanted more money, we wanted equal pay for equal work. After winning the strike, The R.J. Reynolds workers formed a union, Local 22, of the Food, Tobacco, Agricultural and Allied Workers of America, an affiliate of the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. As you'll hear on the show today, which comes to us from the excellent NC Labor History Revealed podcast, the mostly black members of Local 22 leveraged new federal labor law to fight workplace exploitation and legalized segregation creating a model of civil rights unionism that endures today. Decades later, members of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee overcame their exclusion from the same federal labor law to fight for dignified working conditions and to win the largest union contract in North Carolina history. The 1943 R.J. Reynolds strike also inspired the labor jazz opera Love Songs from the Liberation Wars which creators Steve Jones and Elise Bryant debuted in 2017. Plans are now underway to stage a repeat performance in Winston-Salem later this year in recognition of the 80th anniversary of the strike. And on Labor History in Two...
3: The year was 1903. Mary Harris, better known as Mother Jones, held a rally in Philadelphia.
0: I'm Chris Garlock. And this is Labor History Today.
2: Early in
1: the morning, layin', Some someday the light is gonna shine on me. Can't to can can't see the can, it could be not a day do I don't me. know. Can't to can can't see the can, Working so hard I can't take no more. Can't to can can't see the can, I'm working till I'm
0: about to go insane. I hope my family remembers.
4: The history of worker progress in North Carolina is the story of overcoming systemic challenges like racism and facing down industry giants. For a long time, agriculture in general and tobacco in particular was king.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you stand at the threshold of a new era in smoking enjoyment about to introduce one of the most dramatic advances in the history of the tobacco industry.
4: That audio is from a cigarette commercial aired in the 90s for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. The company is one of the largest producers of tobacco products in the world, and it has its roots in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My introduction to R.J. Reynolds was through a boycott of one of the company's cigarette products, the VUse electronic cigarette. This past summer, I joined community members and agricultural workers to stand under the August sun in front of a Circle K gas station in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We stood behind handmade signs demanding that people boycott Reynolds' VUse cigarettes until the company addresses worker abuses and its supply chain. These protests throughout North Carolina are led by Flock, Farm Labor Organizing Committee, a union of and for farm workers. They're demanding that Reynolds come to an agreement with Flock to ensure that the migrant farm workers who produce the tobacco and view cigarettes can collectively bargain to protect their rights. Labor organizing isn't new for the workers who produce the tobacco that Reynolds sells. The history traces back to another group of workers in 1943. We're warned to not let history repeat itself. And for workers, this can mean the same struggles persisting through generations. In today's episode, workers fight for dignified working conditions can be traced to the same company exploiting different groups of people over the course of a century. This exploitation often hurts those the least protected by labor laws. And in our history, this often intersects with marginalized racial and ethnic groups. In 1935, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act. As FDR signed the bill into law, he saw a future of, quote, a better relationship between labor and management by assuring the employees the right of collective bargaining. This act makes it illegal for employers to interfere with their employees' right to organize and join unions. Although there are breaches of workers' rights under this legislation to this day, on the whole, this was a monumental step for most workers. However, this act excluded protections for public sector employees and agricultural and domestic workers, who were disproportionately racial minorities. To resist these kinds of inequitable labor laws that ignore some groups, workers have at several points throughout history focused on building multiracial coalitions. The idea is different groups of people demanding the same dignified working conditions equals power in numbers. In North Carolina, one of the most prominent unions to do this, United Tobacco Workers Local 22, grew out of the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company in Winston-Salem. Tobacco was a huge industry in the United States in general, but especially in North Carolina. The public perception of tobacco was markedly different earlier in American history. Now we see public health campaigns to try to limit tobacco consumption. But during World War I, the U.S. government was one of the largest buyers of tobacco, Soldiers fighting abroad got sent cigarettes as part of their rations. This trend continued into World War II.
3: But the most important job for every member of the family is growing and harvesting tobacco. For example, everyone must go into the fields at topping time, when the blossoms at the top of the tobacco plant are broken off, to make sure that for the rest of the season, all the strength of the soil will go into the leaves. Knowing just when each leaf is ready for picking and fit for curing is one of the great secrets of raising good tobacco.
4: There is an iconic quote by U.S. Army General John Pershing who says, quote, You ask me what we need to win this war. I answer, tobacco. Tobacco is as indispensable as the daily ration. We must have thousands of tons without delay. This underscores the economic power and political clout of tobacco companies like Reynolds. Even in the years following the war, tobacco was in heavy demand. Producers had high economic incentives to increase tobacco production. However, the strain for meeting the generally high levels of demand for tobacco fell on the workers. Fast forward to 1943. R.J. Reynolds in Winston-Salem was firmly the largest cigarette company in the world. Now, we're in a different era in American history than the mill towns we explored in the last episode, but similar practices existed, as in the city was dominated by a couple of big companies that had control over multiple aspects of workers' lives. Robert Chick Black, a man who worked at R.J. Reynolds, recounts his experience in an interview archived in the Southern Oral History Program. He describes Winston-Salem and the antagonistic relationship between black and white workers at Reynolds who were divided by management in an attempt to reduce pro-union sentiments.
1: Now this company dominated Winston-Salem. They had representatives on every government body from the city council on up through Congress. They had a kingdom of their own, blacks hating whites, whites hating blacks. Most blacks and a great majority of the poor whites lived in rat-infested houses, and they couldn't pull themselves out of those conditions because of the economics that Reynolds controlled. And there was no ground for the whites and blacks to sit down and discuss economic problems because they had to face a race question.
4: Black and white workers were both subjugated by R.J. Reynolds, but racial divisions prevented a robust, unified opposition to Reynolds. Black workers were mostly placed in the pre-manufacturing part of the plant, while white workers worked in the manufacturing sections. All the foremen, or supervisors, were white men. This, along with the fact that white workers generally had higher wages, made building solidarity across racial groups extremely difficult to the advantage of Reynolds. The strike that would lead to the eventual formation of Local 22 was spearheaded by black African-American women like Miranda Smith and Theodosia Simpson Phelps. I talk with Dr. Robert Korstad, professor emeritus of public policy and history at Duke and author of Civil Rights Unionism, Tobacco Workers and the Struggle for Democracy in the Mid-20th Century South about the spark that lit the formation of Local 22 at R.J. Reynolds on a muggy summer day, June
1: 1943. In that morning of the 17th, one of the African American men, James McCartell, who brought the tobacco leaves into the stemming departments where black women tore the leaves apart. He'd been sick, tried to go home. He was afraid to lose his job and he had a stroke while he was working and fell and died pretty soon after that. It was a catalyst for people like Theodosia Simpson and others had been trying to organize a labor union at at rentals and so they got most of the women workers to agree to sit down at their machines and say they wanted to have conversations about better working conditions better pay and from that sit down within five or six days increase union membership from a couple dozen maybe to five or six thousand people
4: The intersection of the labor and the civil rights movement wasn't just limited to Local 22 in Winston-Salem. 80 miles east in Durham, these two movements converged when both black and white workers were part of the large tobacco and textile industry. Labor and civil rights leaders unified workers under a common working class identity following an extremely segregated period during World War II. Walter Day and J.B. Filiao were the first black board members elected to the Durham Central Labor Union. Both men were black and pro-union. This helped bring together different groups of people to build a broad coalition that could secure political wins. Throughout the 1960s, pro-labor and racially progressive candidates were elected to the Durham City Council. And on a larger scale, in 1963, labor and black voting blocs united to elect a new mayor, R. Wenzel Graverick, who would go on to expand union employment opportunities and work toward full integration in Durham. These successes and achieving political power in Durham set a precedent for what united labor and civil rights movements could accomplish in the workplace and in boycotts yet to come. Expanding our focus from tobacco, to agricultural work in general. Over the 20th century, there's a shift in who is doing this work. In the earlier parts of the 20th century, most farm workers were African-Americans. Currently, this demographic has changed so that 92% of farm workers in North Carolina are Hispanic. And in many ways, they've inherited the exclusions and the racist laws we discussed earlier. Another one to add to the mix is the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. This policy established minimum wage, overtime pay, and child labor protections to prevent children from being exploited. However, agricultural workers were largely exempt from this policy in order to get Southern politicians to sign on to the plan. Although this act was passed when African Americans were the majority of the agricultural workforce, Hispanic farm workers, who are now the majority of agricultural workers, experience the impact of this. In the years since this policy passed, some improvements have been made for farm workers, but they're really the bare minimum. Some of that progress includes improved housing standards and more legal protections when employers violate the law. For the over one million farm workers in the U.S., these reforms are nowhere near enough Farm workers aren't protected if they strike, which means they don't have the power to retaliate against unjust working conditions like other workers. And since oftentimes their employers control their visa and housing standards, a seasonal neglect with limited options for recourse. In North Carolina, over 150,000 farm workers are the foundation of a $70 billion farming industry. The average yearly income for a farm worker in North Carolina is $11,000. To illustrate this astronomical difference in wealth, North Carolina leads the nation in sweet potato production. For farm workers who make this possible, their income of $11,000 a year is earned by being paid one penny for every pound of sweet potatoes they pick. Farm workers pick 7,000 pounds a day. Practices we would never expect to see in other fields are protected by law for farm workers. In North Carolina, children as young as six years old can legally work in North Carolina fields outside of school hours. Justin Flores, a former flock official, describes the demographic transition within agricultural work in the U.S. and the victories that farm workers have had in advancing their rights.
5: Racial segregation, a lack of political power that Black workers have, now uh, the same holds true for Hispanic workers. Agricultural labor is an area of labor that's been left out of most labor reforms and most labor protections, and that's largely because... Most of the labor laws that is still exist today were passed when the Democrats needed the Southern Democratic votes. The deal struck during that time was for the the Southern Dixiecrats or Democrats who were segregationists uh, would vote in favor of these labor protections so long as they would exclude the majority of Black workers in their region. That workforce has has largely changed to Mexican and Central American, mostly either undocumented or guest workers coming up to work on a visa, which pretty much exclusively means non-voting.
4: Despite legislative obstacles... Farm workers have fought for the protections afforded to other workers. In 1999, Flock mounted a campaign against an industry giant, Mount Olive Pickle Company. Their drive would revolutionize the relationship between growers, the term used for the people who own the farms, and farm workers.
5: At the time, Mount Olive Pickle Company was just a huge purchaser of, of cucumbers in the region. And like most companies just told growers, we don't care if you pay your workers well. We don't care if you have good housing. We don't care what labor practices you have. As long as you have low price, high quality cucumbers, then we'll continue to buy your produce. Uh, And so our membership started highlighting the abuses that were happening uh, all over North Carolina in the cucumber industry and really putting the blame where it belongs at the top of the supply chain. So eventually launched a a boycott of Mount Olive Pickle Company all over the US uh, to get Mount Olive Pickle Company to the table. And after five years of boycotting and debating publicly and back and forth and and lots of excuses about why uh, Mount Olive Pickle uh, Company did come to the table, and a brokered agreement that uh, our members to this day are using on a daily basis, the first collective bargaining agreement uh, in agricultural history in North Carolina, uh, really represents a historic win for farm workers who now for the first time have a grievance procedure, just cause termination and discipline, the right to return, the right to complain without fear of retaliation, that, that really represents a historic win.
4: The legacy of the successful man Olive boycott Fuels the current views boycott. And in this ongoing campaign, where Flock demands that Reynolds come to the table, who ensure that the farm workers who produce tobacco are safe at their jobs and are able to freely negotiate their contracts. And so, the black women who sat at their machines picking tobacco leaves by hand passed down the spirit of racially marginalized workers facing down giants
0: pioneering new horizons in cigarette design, responding to an ever-changing consumer environment, one of the most dramatic advances in the history of the tobacco industry.
3: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1903. Mary Harris, better known as Mother Jones, held a rally in Philadelphia. The famous Irish-American labor leader had come to Pennsylvania to support a strike of textile workers. As many as 100,000 workers were out on strike. 16,000 of them were children. In her autobiography, Mother Jones recalled how the children came to the union headquarters. Many of them had suffered some sort of injury in the mills. She called the rally to bring public attention to the conditions of child labor. She had tried to get the local newspapers to report on the injuries, but the newspapers balked because the mill owners held stock in the papers. In her autobiography, Mother Jones described the rally, writing, a great crowd gathered in the public square in front of City Hall. I put the little boys with their fingers off and hands crushed and maimed on a platform. I held up their mutilated hands and showed them to the crowd and made the statement that Philadelphia's mansions were built on the broken bones, the quivering hearts, and the drooping heads of these children, that their little lives went out to make the wealth for others. The newspapers picked up the quote about the mansions and reported it in their papers. Mother Jones was pleased that she had helped to get the conversation about child labor started. But she knew it would quickly fade away if she did not keep public attention on the brutal conditions children faced every day. So, she planned what has become known as the March of the Mill Children, from Philadelphia to President Theodore Roosevelt's home in Oyster Bay, New York. Through her efforts, Mother Jones helped to bring national attention the plight of child labor. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
2: Ammo cigarettes, companies all about the bottom line, RJ Reynolds, largest factory in the south. They got Jim Crow, the cops in the courts. The boss has got all the money in the world. We got just one chance, we need your support. The black and white.
0: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review, that really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the NC Labor History Revealed podcast. Their other three episodes on Roots, Resistance, and Revival reveal North Carolina's rich history of worker organizing despite its low union density today. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts our music today was from the labor jazz opera love songs from the liberation wars created by steve jones and elise bryant plans are underway to stage a performance in winston-salem later this year in recognition of the 80th anniversary of the strike Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time.